everyone. Welcome to Detoxicity, a podcast about non-toxic masculinity. Whether this is your first time checking this podcast out or if you're a regular listener, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy. Detoxicity is available on just about every podcast platform there is, and I hope that however you listen, you take a minute to subscribe and drop a rating and or a comment. If you feel the need to check me out on social media, you can check me out on Instagram at It's Mike Joseph and on Twitter at Tis Mike Joseph. There is also a Detox Pod newsletter. You can find the link to sign up at tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. I have been slacking on the latest edition of the newsletter. I promise there will be one soon. If you like email, you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear suggestions on how to make the show better, any topics that you'd like to hear brought up. And uh, if you want to be on the show or if you know somebody who'd be a good fit for the show, do not hesitate to reach out. My guest in this episode is music industry executive Eddie Moses. Eddie and I talk about the power of honest communication, even when the communication is about taboo topics, the factors that led him into the music industry, and also growing up gay and biracial. So uh, check the podcast out. I hope you enjoy. Eddie Moses, everybody. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Eddie Moses, and Richard, you know, we work in music with, with independent artists, and so... You know, much of my life has been centered around music and, you know, helping artists, amplifying their voices. And yeah, I'm super excited to be here. When you decide, did you always know that you wanted to be in music? Like, was that from a very young age, something that you wanted to do? Yes. From a very young age, my mother is a flute player. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, you know, not professionally, but she played, she always had a flute and I think I was quite young. I think I was maybe six or seven or something. She just busted out the flute one day and played it and it was so good. Like it was so, I was like, whoa, just like I knew right then and there I wanted to be at that time a flute. I wanted to play flute, but my hands were like too small and my arms were too short. So I couldn't really do it, but I knew right away. I was like, this is what I want to do. And what's interesting and probably pertinent to the, to the topic at hand, but like, I was pressured out of playing flute, obviously because I'm a guy. Playing, really? Yeah, so I ended up, I ended up playing trumpet, and yeah, long story short, I did trumpet and then tuba and went to school for music, and yeah, so it's been a, it's been a long time doing music. Okay, so you actually went to school for an instrument, like not even like industry. Not business, you know. You weren't going for like an MBA or anything like that. You were straight up a, a musician. A, mu- a music major. I didn't even know what a music industry was. I mean, I thought the music industry was like you play and hopefully you make money, but didn't know that obviously there's a whole business behind it. But yeah, like I, I went for tuba performance, so much of my time was like sitting in lessons, going to theory classes and music history classes. Just the, you know kind of conservatory environment music school, which was a lot of fun, but then didn't teach me anything about the business. I won't lie. <laughs> so when, when did you decide to make the switch? When were you like, okay, I want to do, I want to deal with the business end part of it. I think like, I always thought I was really, really great at playing the tuba and just playing instruments in general. But once I got around other really, really good musicians. I sort of had that reality check that I'm not the best one in the room. And I think from there, 
and obviously you don't have to be the best one in the room, but I think from there, I tried to find my other strengths in college and I sort of stumbled into like student organizations and um, I joined a fraternity and I found out that I was really good at like organizing people and just good at that. And so I realized that maybe I should combine music with organization. And at the time, again, I didn't realize that there was a whole industry behind it. I just knew that my skill set might be a mix of music and organization is what I called it. So I actually double majored. And I, I think I was a junior when I added my second major to organizational communication. And yeah, so that's kind of how that happened. It was a big ego check for me. So I was not the best one. What does like organizational communi- organizational communication, like what does that entail specifically? Organizational communication is the study. It's the holistic study of how organizations communicate information internally and how information circulates internally and how organizations communicate externally. So it, it was pretty broad. So I would have classes on publicity and some marketing and just sort of public speaking. But I also had a lot of communication, a lot of classes on like taboo topics. I, that was probably my favorite class. We, it was a class dedicated to just how do you moderate and participate in a conversation that might be taboo. So we talked about, you know, all the things, race, sexuality, gender, but also just weird stuff like food, like all kinds of weird stuff, bodily fluids, all of it. It was a class on how do you, how do you have those conversations? Um, super freaking cool. Dr. Orby, shout out to him. He was amazing. And then what else? Like different, you know, like how, how people communicate internally, like organizational structure, how things disseminate. Yeah. See, to me, that would be such like a bomb class because so many people do not know or feel super uncomfortable communicating about topics that are outside the norm. So when they're forced with having conversations about these things, they just freeze up. Oh, yeah. Kind of. How, like, I guess the learned part of you, how do you find yourself able to navigate topics that may be a little bit more difficult, seemingly more easier, more easier, that's not a word, seemingly easier than the average person would? I think... At minimum, I mean, the class, first of all, was over 10 years ago, probably. But I think at minimum, it gave me the confidence to speak when I'm in a taboo situation because I was exposed to more information that was taboo. And I think probably the biggest takeaway for anyone, you know, is you want to be learning all the time and sort of educating yourself on information that you might not come across on a day-to-day basis. So you can be somewhat educated and hey, if you don't know something or if you're not able to speak on something intelligently, I think that's okay if you tell people, you know, and and you're cognizant of sort of what people's red lines are in terms of the conversation. But like, I think the biggest thing for me was like, we would prep a lot. We would prepare and do a lot of research and understand the topics before we were able to have those conversations. That makes sense. That makes sense. How does that prepare you for being in business now where, I mean, there's so much from a racial standpoint and from a sexist standpoint and everything's kind of like coming to a head. Mm -hmm. Like 
how how has that prepared you to be able to navigate those conversations? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think especially during these times where people's where you know identity is so important and people's voices that weren't heard before are finally being amplified and you know each of us sits in a unique situation depending on you know our race our gender our class all of these different things and i think that limits our exposure to this to these different issues and you know i think it's really important to be educating yourself on what's happening you know i think right now for me i'm trying to understand my privilege as a man and realizing that you know as much as i might be an impressed oppressed individual as a gay man as a gay black man i don't quite understand you know the history and the the experience of a black woman of a woman in general and you know i sort of was you know thought of myself as very forward thinking but in these times i I've, I've taken a lot more effort to to do research and read and try to understand different voices either in social media or any literature so that's what i think and that came from i i would say that probably came from that class because again we pre- we prepare for a race conversation and we do a lot of research and understand what sources are credible etc so right so let's talk about let's talk about young Eddie. Yeah. What was what was young Eddie like? Kind of growing into yourself and being you grew up in Michigan, yep. and you were biracial, mm-hmm. and you identify as gay. Yep. So that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Particularly for a a younger person or a teenager or preteen or what have you, yep. how did you navigate all that growing up? Yo, I I kind of you know. It's hard. Like, it's hard being a gay man in, first of all, the Midwest, let alone Detroit area. I mentioned earlier, like, I wanted to play the flute, for example, and was convinced to play the trumpet. And But mind you, I still played the flute at home. I think for me, there were a lot of different scenarios that I encountered being a gay man, a gay, black, biracial man. Oof, I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> it was challenging. I will say... I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was super challenging. I think as a gay man in black culture and in just in general, we are somewhat policed. I think our bodies are policed. I think our voice, the way we speak is policed. I think our sexuality is obviously for a long time was governed. And, and so it was sort of like, I didn't feel like I had any role models necessarily and sort of was kind of floating adrift and felt sort of, like an alien in my own community. It took me, I think, really years after my adolescence to really try to understand who I was as a person. And that's sort of like my experience as a gay man. I think as a biracial man, as a biracial kid, I felt like it helped me in many ways and gave me a lot of privileges. I think Probably the biggest thing for me is like my proximity to whiteness helped me learn how to code switch very easily, just how to navigate in academia and with teachers and stuff like that. I think it really helped me, but in other ways it did, it, it has always been a difficult thing to navigate because, you know, in certain scenarios I'm dealing with racism um, from white people 
And that's tough, you know what I'm saying? But then on the flip side, you know, not, I don't visibly, if you look at me, I could pass for Spanish or whatever. And so sometimes I am misidentified as being black by, depending on where I am. So that's always like, not necessarily bothers me, but just something I've observed. Like my identity as a biracial person sort of fluctuates depending on who I'm with and where I'm at in the country, to be sure. honest. Um, sure. In New York, people think I'm Dominican and Latino, but in Michigan, you know, people aren't sure. They know that I'm non-white, but in certain cases, some people do view me as, as black. So it's kind of like, it's kind of been a journey, to be honest, but it's taken me a while to kind of get comfortable with my identity overall. Understood. Uh, you mentioned code switching, which I find really interesting. And I don't think anyone's ever talked about on one of these before. And it's like, okay, so not only do you have to code switch between races, but, you know, there is definitely a queer code switching as well. Oh, my God. So for me, and for me, it's very unconscious. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I think just over the course of my years, it's all gotten mixed up. So Are you code switching right now? I don't think so. I could be. I could not be. Yeah. I think I think it's easier or more unconscious that I code switch around other black people yeah. than when I'm around white people. I think when I'm around and I don't know. I mean, when I'm around other queer people, I think there is a little bit of code switching, but it's it's lighter. It's not as prominent. Yeah. It just it really all depends. Yeah. And I think I'm trying to like I've, I've I've only been conscious of it really for a few years, and I'm trying to. Okay. Now, when I try to talk, I try to talk the same way to everyone. Yeah. And it it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure you've heard me in business meetings in particular when I get super articulate. <laughs> but I, you know, I feel like you really do a good job of it. Like I, I feel like you're just natural in yourself. You know, like I've never sensed, you know, any code switching from you. So I don't. It took I, a while to get there. I definitely, depending, it's really more of like a familiarity kind of thing. Like yeah. I did, I did one of these with, with a guy that I grew up with mm -hmm. and the neighborhood I grew up in with w the neighborhood I grew up in was 100% black, mm -hmm. uh, 100% Caribbean American. Yeah. And you fall into certain habits of saying things. When I'm with my family, I fall into certain habits of saying things yeah. that I unintentionally police myself from when I'm talking in like a greater group. Yeah. Um, just because, like, these people ain't going to understand what I'm saying. Exactly, yeah. But it, it is very interesting how how unconscious it is. Like, yeah. you're just kind of subconsciously taking in what's around you and adjusting the way that you speak to fit into what you think those people will understand. And does so I guess that... I wonder, is code switching so bad? I think for me there's certain scenarios where I look back where I'm like, I'm code switching and I feel like I'm scraping away a part of my identity to perform in this space. Whereas sometimes code switching is important to maybe get your point across to an audience that would otherwise not understand you. I, 
at work, I will say 100% I'm code switching. Okay. Like right now, I'm not. Like, I'm just talking. But I have no fear of, oh, if I say a slang word, you're not going to understand me or it's going to be misinterpreted. I think when I'm at work, I have this, like, underlying anxiety of, uh-oh, don't let any of your Detroit shit slip up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Especially if I'm not if I'm tired that day or just like not completely focused, you know what I'm saying? Like I am very like aware of like how I'm speaking and if it's going to be misinterpreted. And I think it's just habit that I've built up in corporate life. Right. Right. And I mean, there is just in, in general, like if you are trying to climb the corporate ladder, there is some code switching you have to do. Like I said, I just try to be mindful of it and try to, mitigate and try to like sit somewhere in the middle. So I don't feel as though I am trying to be someone else Yeah. when I'm talking to people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's super important. That's a, what brought your attention to your coats. Like, was there a single event that happened or. I don't think there was an event. I just, I think I, I noticed it. Like I remember there was a, this was maybe like three years ago. And I was sitting, sitting outside the office with a white coworker and somebody on the street just started like talking shit. And like, when I get angry, that's when Brooklyn comes all the way out. And like, I just like, you know, started flipping out and the guy looked at, like I sat down and he looked at me and he just like had this shocked look on his face. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I guess I don't sound like that on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it just, it depends. you know, yeah, it depends on what button gets pushed. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I think, yeah, I think it's really important, especially in a workplace environment. Like, it's important that you're flowing and you feel like confident to be able to speak how you can. Because I think that sort of like, materializes in how you work and like your work product. Like if you're nervous about, or at least this is my experience. Like I have felt nervous about my communication and it has impacted my other areas of work. And I feel like if, you know, and I'm working at it as I get older, but, and as I'm more confident in myself, the better I'm able to work and get my points across. So I say for the person like that can't code switch. And again, like for me and perhaps you, like we have, we're intelligent. Like we know what we're talking about. We've been around the block a few times, so we can. And obviously I'm biracial and have white family and have the proximity. It's easier for us to code switch, but there's a lot of very smart people that cannot. Right. I think that's what I think about, like about like the, the people from the hood who are very intelligent, you know, and, or from the South or whatever, you know, I kind of wish that bias would, you know, lay itself to rest if they and i hope it does too because you know the level of someone's ability to quote unquote speak properly really has no bearing on their intelligence no it doesn't it really doesn't and there's a lot of people that speak very well that we all know yeah that are dumb as a motherfucking rock oh yes indeed yes indeed so one thing I remember you telling me back in the day that really kind of like sat with me is that you seek out like older queer men 
to kind of like learn from almost in a way. And I wanted you to talk about that just because it, it's, I think it's really important. Yeah. For, for me, I think, especially in my twenties, I think now I'm, I'm sort of a little bit more established. I have more footing in, in myself. In my twenties, I, I also don't have a, a great relationship with my father. So I think I've always been like kind of seeking older role models to, to look to for advice. And I think, yeah, I, it's super important. There's no one, you know, a mentor is only as good as they understand your situation and sort of can help you. And I did go on sort of a path to find, you know, m- men that were older than me that could sort of show me the ropes, teach me a few things about the business. And it was very helpful. I had an opportunity to be like an a assistant for a brief moment with one of my mentors that was very eye-opening, kind of understanding how that process works. Another mentor of mine owns a magazine and, you know, especially in my early 20s, I didn't even know any black men that owned anything. So let alone a gay black man. And so seeing his work process, how he works, how shrewd he is and all that was inspiring. And it sort of gave me, gave me a lot of language to use in work. Whereas I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting that advice from anyone, really. I was just, you know, at work doing my thing, but I would tell my mentors about like different situations. They would give me the tools that I needed to articulate what I'm, you know, what I'm saying at work. So super important. Also, I think it's important to understand just like love life and relationships and having older gentlemen, especially, you know, again, I don't have a great relationship with my father, like, and also being gay, you don't get a prom, you don't get to go on dates in your teens. So there's just a lot of learning that you have to do. And so just getting that advice, you know, relationship advice from, from folks that have a few years on you is super important. You know, I can't even think of one particular piece of advice that they've given me. I think it's more so just been at least having them as a resource that's helped me. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's the same. It was the same way for me. Like you needed to have people who showed you the way or who showed you that it was possible. Yeah. Cause you don't know what's possible until you see it really. Yeah. You know, and you might see it in your dream or you see it, you know, in real life, you know, and that was super important to see. Like, and just in time, I think I'm really kind of started meeting people when I moved to New York, I was like 26, 27 Mm -hmm. when I started forged these relationships. And I think if I had waited any longer, it would not that it been too late. It just, I would have formed conclusions about the world that I maybe wouldn't have without these mentors that I, you know, that I have. So. And I think that hinders a lot of people who stay in their, you know, stay in their suburban or rural environments past their thirties and into their forties and fifties. And then, you know, come out when they're in their forties or fifties and they're like, I don't know how to deal with any of this shit. I I do think that there's a benefit to being in an urban center where queerness is significantly more normalized to figure yourself out. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it was a thing, you know, so much too that you, because in our world, there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of layers too. There's racism, colorism, um, yeah. 
masculine masculinityism. I don't know what to call that, but <laughs> that type of shit. So having people that can kind of like guide you, give you perspective if you're feeling like your self esteem is you know messed up, like they can kind of give you perspective. Like, hey, it gets better. And I will say, like us Midwest kids, like we still figured out how to connect. Like, I guess I missed the boat, but I don't ever heard of it. Like, a lot of my friends are now kind of admitting to like these like they're like these chat groups, but on phone. It was before there was internet, but a lot of a lot of the singers, the young black gay singers, were all finding each other and connecting on phones in like the nineties. And that's how a lot of them know each other now. So I think even forging relationships with mentors, forging relationships with your peers. Peers, yeah. I'm trying to make some kind of point, but, you know, I hear of those types of things happening. So we kind of found a way, no matter what, us black gay kids. Like, for me, like, it was, it was, it came a little bit later in life, but a lot of us, like, we forged a way to forge those relationships and meet people and sort of, get some perspective on the world. Otherwise we'd feel alone, you know, we'd be alone. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, and not to make light of it, but gay men and bi men are very, very resourceful. Aren't they? Yeah. What is wrong with us? I mean, these are people that can, they'll cut a hole in a bathroom. (laughs) No, like they, yeah, I just, we are very resourceful and we have to be, you know, from a very early age. Because the world isn't, it's not made for us. No. You know, it's the same, it's the same thing as being black. Like black people got to be resourceful because, you know, the world isn't black, Mm-mm. you know, no. it's made for somebody else and you have to figure out how to get your way into, you know, into that world or into a world that you feel like you belong in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important to have, for me at the time being a teenager, like I, I had a vision for myself early age. Like for some reason I just knew I was like, I want to go to college. I think I was watching like boy meets world and like all these different things and seeing them go to college. And that to me, was like, okay, in TV, they can go to college. I can go to college. So that helped me have a lot of hope and get me to where I am today. But yeah, man, we are resourceful. Yeah. yeah. Don't play. We figure yeah. it out. That's right. Where there's a will, there's a way. Did you go to college in Michigan? I did. I went to Western Michigan University. um, Okay. On the side, yeah. All right. All right. That's in... I know Eastern Michigan University is Grand Rapids. No, but Grand Rapids is a city and has a university. Okay. No, EMU is in Ann Arbor. I don't know where WMU is. So, University of Michigan is in Ann Arbor. Okay. Eastern Michigan is in Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti. I... And then WMU, Western Michigan, where'd you say it was? I didn't know. I don't know where WMU is. In Kalamazoo. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, that's, yeah. a little, that's far off enough that you got some freedom. It was wonderfully free. You know, I, <laughs> actually, I'm probably over... It was wonderfully free, however... Coming from Detroit area, I was going more into a conservative side of the state. So that was, I had already dealt with a lot of homophobia growing up. I was in a sort of mixed race neighborhood. So I won't say I was insulated from racism, definitely dealt with racism, but it wasn't as prominent. 
until I got to college where I, you know, was called the N word and, you know, dealt with those types of things um, in Kalamazoo. But with that though, leaving home came a ton of freedom. It was, it was amazing. And uh, definitely, you know, I was that gay kid that I think, did they have, did you ever hear of BGC? What's that? BGC, Black Gay Chat. I mean, there was like Black Planet and there was Gay.com and there was all that other stuff. I don't remember BGC. There was, in terms of freedom, yes, Black Gay Chat. It was revolutionary because it was, it was like MySpace or whatever, but you could see who visited your profile. Like at the time, that was different from any other of the gay app, anything like that. Right. So, right. Um, you know, like finally able to meet people. I was using that, you know, college to the campus, like meeting other gays. I was in the, I was in the music school and there were plenty of other gays and it was kind of cool to kind of see, but yeah, lots of freedom able to like just sort of explore and expand. And I, I actually was, I kind of considered myself bisexual by the time I was 18. So I was like experimenting too, just like experimenting with everything. But yeah. Lots of freedom. And you know, in that case, freedom was a good thing. Some people get freedom and they don't know what the hell to do with it. I don't think I knew what the hell to do with it either, to be honest. I was like, I'm such an idiot. I but you're, you're still here. So I'm still here. I survived. I survived. So that's what they say. Oh, you know what? Going back to what we said earlier, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. No, it's fine. The mentor thing. The biggest piece of advice that I was given in my 20s was just survive your 20s. It's a wash. Like, Get through your 20s, make sure you're taking care of yourself, you're eating well, and, you know, put yourself first and and build, you know, find out who you are in your 20s. And then in your 30s, worry about success and, you know, getting a house and all that stuff, but survive. And that, I think that was the, that was really important for me to hear. Super important, super simple too. So. And is that how you're looking into your 30s now? Like, you're like, okay, I have these distinct things that I want to do with my life and now I'm going to try to figure out how to do them. Yeah. Yeah. Less, less planned out more so like going as I, you know, as I feel it, but yeah, like I, I tried to hone my skills in my twenties and, and learn and be curious. And now I kind of know what I'm good at and know sort of what I bring to the table. And so, yeah, it's now it's like, how do I flip this into some money, you know, some extra cash, some, some you know financial security so absolutely. absolutely like it is is new york your long your long tail goal or are you just like i'm stacking paper to get a house in the burbs and i don't know <laughs> i don't know my dream is to have a really posh apartment in new york or la or both and a house like near my mom in detroit okay so and maybe jump in between, you know, like I might stay in New York for a couple months. I might go to LA for a couple months, go to Detroit. That would be the dream. I'm trying to be lavish, Eddie. <laughs> I can't, you know, I want these things. I don't have them, but I really right. want them. Um, no. It's important you know, to have goals. Yeah. It's like, you know, for me, like I, w- I think it's important for me to, I want to be close to my mom. Right. I also want, I like the, I like the feeling of being in a new environment. Like I like the feeling of like restarting, you know, and kind of getting a re a, a, a re- reboost, I guess. Sure. Um, 
and that happens when I'm able to travel and take time off. And so, yeah, ideally, I don't know when I'm not putting a year on it, but that's what I'm working towards. Like having, you know, some flexibility to move around a bit. Good deal. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I grew up in a house. Yeah. I grew up for here and I, every now and then, like, I'm like, eh, maybe this isn't a great place to like be older necessarily, but I like the energy of New York. I don't, I don't think I could live in a suburb or a rural area, at least not full time. Like if I get away for three weeks or a month, that's fine. Yeah. But I need, I need the diversity that a place like New York offers me. Absolutely. Um, you know, one, one thing I noticed when I lived in Boston is that people would like graduate from college and, you know, spend like their mid to late twenties in Boston and then get married, have a kid and move out to the suburbs. And then their life was kind of over. And that's not me. Me <laughs> So I was just like, you know, it's like, okay, well maybe it's time to get back out somewhere where that does not have to be the standard. And in New yeah. York, you know, you can be in your 40s, you can be in your 50s with no kids and, you know, you're living in an apartment and you're still being social with your friends and kind of all that stuff. So it just feels like the right place for me right now. But, you know, at some point, you never know. Like, I might I might get tired of it. Yeah, so, yeah. You see yourself, like, having a family and all that? Like, I mean, I find myself, I, I, I would like to be in a relationship tailored to the type of relationship that I want to be in, which is not incredibly traditional. And like, I, you know, when I was in my late twenties and early thirties, I thought I wanted kids. Now I'm a hard no. Just cause you know, like I grew up in a house where I had to change diapers and feed kids and eat okay. SpaghettiOs and do all that <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, eh, I kind of went through that. Yeah. You I don't need to do that, that again. That, yeah. yeah. You already got that out. Yeah, yeah. for sure. You know, my friends have kids. I, I will dote on them. I'm very happy to see them. They love me. But yeah. I can go home and not have the responsibility of a whole other human being in my, you know, to deal with. Like, I, I want to I be responsible for myself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like that, too. I'm kind of like going back and forth. I definitely like the idea of having kids and sort of the, the, the optics of it. Right. It's the lack of a better word, just like I do. I've always wanted to have kids, but when I think about having to take care of a child every day and, you know, I just don't, I, I know that I'm not able to do that. You know, yeah. I still have a lot more taking care of me to do. And some know? people have that, that gene. Some people have that button. And I don't think I have that button. I just don't think I have that button. Absolutely and it's fine. Not. Either way is fine. So, as a biracial queer person, like, I don't know, for me personally, I've always found that I don't fully feel comfortable in any particular group. And, like, it's hard to explain, Yeah. but, you know, it's like, when I'm hanging out with, like, the people from my hood that I grew up with, yeah. like, some of those guys are homophobic, and it's uncomfortable. Absolutely. You know, when I hang out with, you know, a group of gay guys now, you know, I don't necessarily see myself as having much in common with stereotypical gay men. So 
that kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. And it's a very weird like situation to be in. Do you feel that situation at all? Do you just feel at home wherever? Or what you just said resonated with me so hard, especially in terms of my gay identity. And it's you know, gotta parse all these identities out. But like in terms of my gay identity, absolutely. Like I spent some time with some old friends from like elementary school and in the hood. And they, you know, of course, the, what I, we don't have much to talk about. Usually they want to talk about, you know, bitches and hoes. And I really don't give a fuck about that shit. You know, right. I'd rather tell you about Mariah Carey, you know, Mariah Carey just dropped this or, you know, <laughs> so they don't, they're not trying to hear that either. So for me, it's less about I'm comfortable. Like, I'm not worried about them like I was when I was younger. Like, oh, I'm so gay. But like. It's less like, what are we going to talk about? We just sit around, like, we're just playing video games, smoking weed, you know? Like, right. So it was hard to forge relationships with them in adulthood. And then I guess in just like gay world, I, I feel you, you know? I think for me, I get a lot of social anxiety when I'm in big groups. And it's hard for me to go in places where I don't feel like I'm part of community. And it's hard for me to participate. Like, it's just hard for me. And so, especially in white gay spaces, like, I feel like that's the most difficult for me to get in and sort of, you know, have fun and operate. In black gay spaces, depends. You know, again, community is super important. Like, there's layers to it, that, you know, in gay, especially in New York, you know, there's that cosmopolitan lifestyle that a lot of people lead that I don't necessarily identify with, but... Right a lot of those people are like industry people. So I know them and I'm aware of them. So I might, I might go out to some events, but I don't necessarily feel like I am part of that community. And that's not to knock them. I think that, you know, that's a really cool kind of scene. Yeah. For me, it's sort of like, especially now that I'm, I'm 32, I'm trying to let go of like, which gay world do I can sort of focus on? Like what world do I fit in? and try to find my community, whether it's a woman, whether it's a non-binary white person, you know, like just find people that right. I know love me, love them and sort of be in those environments. So that as a gay, in terms of my gay identity, yes. In terms of my race, yeah, I think I'm definitely aware of it at all times, whether in an all white environment as spoken black, or if it's an all black environment, I'm aware of it either by my own sort of complex, like, you know, do I sound black enough? Did that person understand me? Did, you know, like, and also being gay too. Sometimes I get situations like where, like I'll be at the club and a girl comes up to me and it's like, kind of holler. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how to sell you that I am a gay man. And right. if I tell you, are you going to, is it going to be an issue? Is you it going to be a situation? So yeah, yeah, a situation, but you know, and it depends on where you are in that kind of scenario. But yeah, man, like in my, all of my identities, it's sort of like, I'm like, do I fit in? That that does come come to my mind. But now I'm more so trying to find a way to like find my community and be around my community. That's, I think, most important. Whoever that may be. Whoever that might be. That You know, that's race, gender, sexuality, agnostic, you know, friends are of identities that I don't necessarily... I, you know, that I'm not necessarily a part of, but they, I feel most like myself around them and like I'm having the most fun. If that makes right. sense. How do you go about finding those people? 
I think it is a matter of taking stock. I had to take stock of like the people in my life and, you know, who do I feel comfortable, you know, comfortable with and who is, who do I feel sees me for who I am and not necessarily, you know, the surface level things about me. And that took a lot of work. I did lose friendships through that process. I did certain friendships became distant through that process and others flourished. And now the more that I, you know, as I'm sorry, my neighbor's like yelling at his dog, um, <laughs> you know, now I'm trying and I, you know, I try to go based on feeling, you know, with each and individual per each and every individual person. But I think it's more so like, who do you feel like sees you and acknowledges you as the whole person and not the surface for me, the surface level. Cause Again, you know, there's light skin stuff that colorism stuff that I deal with where I get a lot of extra bullshit, extra praise and extra adulation, extra compliments um, from people, you know, due to, you know, colorism. And now do you I mean, how you know, does that, that can go, go. I'm curious how that manifests itself. I'm not light skinned, so I don't I don't mm-hmm. have firsthand experience of that. How does yeah. that manifest itself? It manifests itself in a lot of different ways. It's been, it's, it's interesting. I had a relationship that sort of fizzled and ended a very serious relationship because the person in many ways fetishized my color, like my skin tone and like my biraciality specifically, but also felt inferior at the same time. And I think, his issue, and not to go too deep into it, but his issue is he's a Louis, half Louisiana Creole and half sort of African-American. And through his Creole family, he, there was a lot of colorism, colorist beliefs instilled into him mm-hmm. and anti-Black beliefs that sort of manifested in who he seeked out as a partner. And while at first I'm like, yeah, he loves me and he really wants me and you know, all these things, um, especially during a honeymoon phase, right, that faded quickly, and it often fades quickly because it's surface level, like looks and, and you know, skin to all this stuff that someone might be like about a person. It's super, it's cheap. It goes like that, you know, and what really keeps a relationship is the bond and the connection and, you know, all those other things. And so, yeah, it's manifested in relationships. One thing... I sort of had like two extremes in my experience, like in gay world. And I'm sure you know the deal. Like when you go into a white gay space, they ain't checking for you. They want white, white, white. It's white only and skinny white too. So it's Mm -hmm. like, um, that's it. Especially if you're young and twinkish like I was like, nah, they don't want no young black twink. They want a young white twink. So, and even the black people, they want to want. So that's, that's white environment. So I felt invisible. And that was like my first gay experiences going to like little white clubs and stuff. Then I finally would go to a black gay experience and it was the exact opposite to the other extreme. It was like, I was a rock star walking in and it was like, every person is trying to talk to me and this and that. And I felt like a damn celebrity. I really did. Especially at 20, 21, 22, it was a great confidence booster having come from being invisible. Like right. literally thinking, I'm, I'm like, I'm ugly. Like I am ugly as hell. And then finally going to a space where I was appreciated that sir, that, you know, soon I learned to sort of sift through that and understand like what is surface level and what is just 
sort of like looks and probably colorist beliefs on the part of a potential, you know, romantic interest or anyone for example, for that matter, relationship, friendship, any of that. It took me some time to like figure out who likes me for my personality and who can tolerate my, you know, my bullshit, you know, and who just wants me around for, you know, proximity to, you know, light skinned, you know, privilege. Right. It's who's looking at, at the, who's looking for the inner shell versus the outer shell. Yeah. So it's still a growing experience for me. Like to this day, I promise you, that's what I was saying earlier. Like in terms of my biracial identity and just being light skinned and I, there's a perception of me that I know ex- exists and I've learned that it doesn't necessarily align with who I am and sort of understanding like when I walk into a room without making, you know, snap judgments, but just like understanding like what, how I might be perceived in different spaces and trying to, you know, if it's, if it's not in alignment with who I am, how do I like navigate that and, you know, show people who I am and show, you know, show people like, Hey, I'm not conceited. I know I'm light skinned and all this other stuff, but I'm not like a bitchy conceited light skinned gay. Like I'm, you know, I'm a regular person with, you know, self-esteem issues and I'm just trying to make it out here. You know, like it's a process. It depends on, you know, the scenario that I'm, but yeah, to this day. What do you think you are like, what is the thing that you're trying to most work on as you evolve to the next Eddie to, you know, the next better version of you? What do you think? What do you think that looks like? I'm going to be straight up. I'm trying to get rid of my sort of, it's not gone yet, but like the the whole corporate servitude thing, man, like, (laughs) and capitalism thing. Like I really wanted the cool industry job and I really, really wanted to be, you know, and I still do. I still love what I do and I still love our industry and the fact that we amplify artists' voices. That's super important. But associating my value with my company and the brand of my company, like I'm trying to sever that. I, I want no parts. I want no parts. And associating other people's value. And I know that for us, it's tough because the industry's so relationship and we have to sort of analyze social networks in a bit to determine an artist, you know, demand sales, blah, blah, blah. Like that's what we do on a big job. Sure. I'm trying to d- detach value from corporations, from like individual people. I feel like it's, you know, that's done. And I don't know what that looks like. I'm still like, it's like a piece of yarn that I'm trying to like unravel because it's so many years of like capitalist values that have been, ins- I've had instilled in me, but I know this ain't it. I just know this ain't it. I know how I feel. I know that my creativity is I do have a lot of creativity and I have a lot to bring. And I think corporations as a whole are designed to extract as much as possible with as little return. And I'm feeling that now. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling the, that, that, how that hurts. In my 20s, I could just do it. Now I'm just like, I feel like my soul is being extracted and I'm not getting anything back. That's kind of how I feel. It is. I, you so know, that's cap- where I'm at. That's where I'm trying to level up. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, capitalism is a weird thing, man. I, I like I'm constantly going over my own feelings about it because I have friends that are very anti-capitalist, and I'm like, okay, like I grew up poor, you know, I've been on WIC, I, you know, 
lived on like my first job I ever got was $5 an hour. And I was like living alone or like in an apartment with friends on like $7 an hour back in the day. So I have been like poverty, poverty, poor. And I am not poverty, poverty, poor anymore. I like not being poor a lot better. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, it's not like loaded. Like I'm still in debt. I'm still paying shit off. You know, if I miss a couple of checks, I'm still probably in a bad place or if something, heaven forbid, something medical happens to me or whatever. So I'm not like rich, rich, but Mm -hmm. you know, I am middle class, solidly middle class. So capitalism, I mean, it took the long way to work for me, but ultimately it has worked for me. But at the same time, you are right that corporations, and I've felt this for a long time, that they will just take what they can get from you and then spit you out and not give you a second thought. Like corporations don't really view their employees as people. Right. And, you know, I've had to go through my own like mental health challenges and all that stuff to kind of figure that stuff out. But it just puts me in a weird place where I'm like, okay, I'm grateful for what my job and my talents have brought me, but it has come with a sacrifice. And it's just kind of like trying to weigh all of that. So, yeah, I mean, all I'm trying to say is that I don't like, I'm I'm still trying to figure out where I stand on there. Like I know that there is a lot bad about capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm grateful for the fact that I am not scraping coins together to get the two ninety nine value meal from from McDonald's anymore. Absolutely. No, I hear you. I hear you. And same. Like, and exactly the same. Like, I wonder what you know the right solution is. I know that. What I don't like is my, it, it does feel very soul crushing to mm-hmm. know that so much value is being extracted. Like maybe there needs to be somewhat, the, the power balance needs to be shifted. And I don't know what that looks like. You know, I do think there's a place for record labels. I think that, you know, these businesses are important. They're what help kind of create taste and culture. You know, they're, yes. they help with that. They don't yes. create it, but they can help sort of amplify that. And I think there's a role for that. And so- does that look different in a non-capitalistic structure? Is it, is it, you know, partners working with each other and like sort of an ecosystem of business people? What does that look like? But, you know, I think for us, we have to survive and eat and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be hungry. I'm trying to starve. I'm yep. check. However, you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to get my check without feeling like my soul is being sucked out of me, you know, trying to figure that out. And, you know, again, another work in progress there. I think that is super admirable. I think that is super admirable. So if people want to find you, Eddie, can they find you? If yes, so, where? <laughs> <laughs> I want to go ahead and find me. Let me see. My Instagram is Eddie J. Moses, M-O-S-E-S. So E-D-D-I-E-J-A-Y-M-O-S-E-S. You weren't named after the runner, were, were you? Or the hurdler oh, or whoever no. it was? Okay. That's Edwin Moses. No, no. Mm. Um, no. Edwin. Uh, yeah. A lot of people are like, oh, the track star. Definitely not me. Trust <laughs> me. Not, no track. not this one. <laughs> um, 
Nah, different people in my family have Edward in like their middle names. So I okay. guess they're like, fuck it. Let's make this one Edward. Thank you, Eddie, for keeping it real, which if you know him personally, you already know he's very, very good at. You can find Eddie on Instagram as Eddie J. Moses. The J is spelled out J-A-Y. So uh, make sure you give him a follow. As stated at the top of the show, I, and by extension Detoxicity, can be reached via various means. I'm on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. I'm on Instagram at It'sMikeJoseph. And I can be emailed at DetoxPod at gmail.com. I would love to hear feedback from you. If you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show, if you have a question that you'd like to ask uh, in the advice realm and you think I might be able to answer it or give some insight, send it over. Uh, guest suggestions, if you want to be a guest, please reach out. Email uh, slide my DMs, whatever you want. Uh, so I'm trying to promote a specific charity at the end of every show, and it's really important in the next couple of weeks, and I apologize to everybody that's listening after the 2020 election. Uh, it's really important to get folks at the polls or voting by mail to vote. And uh, it's also important. Uh, I think my politics are fairly obvious from the theme of this show. It is important that you vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, for the president and vice president of the United States. So I'm going to either promote voting or promote voting related charities uh, for the next couple of weeks. And this week's charity is Vote Save America. You can register to vote. You can donate. You can do all sorts of things. You can volunteer. Uh so go to votesaveamerica.com and get some information. And please, 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 please make sure you vote this year and every year. And as always, I wish you continued health and safety. And thank you very much for supporting and listening to Detoxicity. My name is Mike Joseph. I will talk to you next week. Peace. Peace.